By the time I get to step seven and humbly ask him to remove my shortcoming, I'm saying that with a clear recognition that that's, this is who and what I am, that I could become better, I could be that which I'm supposed to be. What am I supposed to be? Child of God. Cesar, show me. Well, some do. Shelby, Shelby said about earth people who just get this. You know, the truth of the matter is, based on how they're raised, based on their values and beliefs, based on their spiritual development, they do just get it. They have something you and I don't have. Not all of them, because it says in our literature that we're not the only people emotionally ill. See, it's not just us. There's a lot of... I told you, there's 211 cross-step groups with 35 million members. You may not have known that. I did some research in that. 211 that I know of. I was researching a game I was making, and so I had to go around the country and unmoot as many cross-step programs as I could find. I found 211. They all used the cross-steps. And between them and their families, 35 million people. And that is all-encompassing. And they're all emotionally ill to some extent, and so are all the earth people. But the thing they have that you and I don't have is what? Natural, emotional, what? Brilliancy. That is the ability to bounce back. That's all that means. It's the ability to bounce back from a bad event or to bring myself down from a wonderful experience. How many of us believe we can get drunk after a traumatic experience? I mean, is it typical? Death, loved ones. How many of us get drunk with wonderful things going on? Many of us, pal. Lots of us can't stand success. Doctors call it fear of success. No, what it is, is the greater success we experience. Here's the line of normal versus alcoholic. And this is the distance between the two, okay? The greater achievements I make, the more normal I begin to feel. Pretty soon, I'm on a five-year run. Everything is great. No problem. Man, I'm the hit in AA. I'm the guru of the group. Women are all around me. My kids worship me. God's life is good. And I drink. Why? Because in my mind, I don't need this anymore. I've gotten normal. I've gotten special. I've seen it happen in AA so many times in the 21 years I've been sober. Sometimes we drink because of failure. Sometimes we drink because of success. But that's not really why. Sometimes we drink because we don't go to meetings. But what about those of us that drink while we're going to meetings? If you take a look at all those symptoms... They all come into a small, narrow thing. Is I begin to feel like I don't fit in, I don't belong, I'm not a part of. And I begin to leave. And one of those three insides, I guarantee you, if you talk to I'll make you a promise. Talk to some slippers when they come back. And ask them what they were doing. Not before they drank, six months before. Ask them what they were doing. And I'll bet you one of those three insanities were engaged. They either began to think they could drink normal. They were either living by their old ideas that need to change. Or, they thought they'd become normal and didn't need AA no more, therefore no longer alcoholic. And that's where step seven becomes so vital. See, step six and seven in the big book's only got two paragraphs, right? But if you read the 12 and 12, it goes into a deep amount of symptomatology. When you get into step seven, it's asking me to say to you that I clearly understand how sick I am. And I want this God 
to remove my selfishness, my dishonesty, my self-seeking, my inconsiderateness, my resentfulness. In other words, my childish refusal to let go of someone else's mistake. You hear me? Childish refusal to let go of someone else making a mistake. See, I, I want you to understand me, accept me, and forgive me no matter what I do. But you make one mistake and the whole group's going to know it. Isn't that interesting? I'm the guy that goes to church and wants to sleep with a minister's wife and be accepted by the elders. Isn't that unconditional law? I mean, I, that's just the way my mind works. I think unconditional love is to be accepted, doing whatever I want, and for you to say I'm a good guy anyway. That's what I think un- unconditional love is. You know what I've come to find out unconditional love is? Is, go do what you want, pal. She's going to bring it into my arena of life. I mean, you're ready to stop that nonsense. I'm here for you. I didn't know that. My sponsor never got into my nonsense one time. He would step back, what the 12 and 12 refers to as sidestepping. It's like when we were subject to intense emotional disturbance. That's one of the symptoms of deism, this restless, irritable, and discontentedness. There's a, right, let me give you a tip before I forget. What's in step 10 anyway? Remind me, step 10, will you? About that. I can give you this one. It's tax time, isn't it? You know, you know how I learned to get over making bad decisions in step 3? This, this, this is not in the big book, so get over it. What's that say? IRS. I have an idea. I have an idea. I'm going to research that idea for information. I'm going to scrutinize what I find. I'm going to talk to somebody about it. And then I'm going to make a decision. That's how we make rational decisions once we're sober a while. Step back. I mean, how many of us have major decisions to make all the time? How many people try to make those decisions on their own? I mean, we're talking about life and death. So I'm going to make a decision about the rest of my life. I better take it to another human being who has experience traveling on this path who can say, you know what, you might be just a little dangerous. So I have a good idea. By the way, if you're new and you have a good idea, please share it with us today. When I get good ideas, I need to research it, investigate it, investigate the idea, research the information, scrutinize it, which means discuss it with another person, make sure it's reasonable and rational, and what would be the best decision to make, and then decide. But that isn't how we do it. We feel, we do, and then we think, oh shit. That's how we do it. Here's what the normal people do, shall we? This is when they, they think, they ask themselves, this is right out of the books. They feel, they think about what they're going to do. They try to feel what, what it means. And then they do, and then they assess its success. That's what the earth people tend to do. Here's what we do. We, we feel. I feel like Let's do it. <laughs> and then we go, oh crap. 
That's how we, that's what we do. We feel, do, and think, and they think, feel, and do. And then they assess what they do, and then they make a decision whether they want to do it again or not. Right? I feel it, I do it, I go, oh crap, let's try it again. They don't, they don't do it again this time. That's how we do it, that's our formula. And in order to defeat that, we have to find a new way to do it. And that's where step, we get into step 10, that's where it comes in. So step 7 is the culmination of the first six ideas. Step seven is combining parts of step six where I'm saying, okay, I've got a clear recognition of who and what I am. I have my seven defects of character. I've got my six shortcomings. I'm powerless over them. I need help. God, will you take them? And then, because I clearly identify it, then when I move into the rest of the steps, I'll be able to uncover, discover, and discard it in regular inventory. And it will become a working part of my mind, spotting and checking these flaws in my makeup. Because remember, it doesn't matter what you see. How many, how many people in this room can clearly see the defects of others? Clearly. Clearly. I mean, I've been looking around the room for just two minutes and I've seen your defects already. I mean, you've seen some of mine up there since we started this morning. Some of you have been thinking some thinking. And I don't blame you a damn bit, but I'm not seeing what you're thinking, so I don't care. But when I'm not happy, I'm really concerned about what I might even say, what are you thinking? And you'll say, nothing. Why? <laughs> you're thinking something, why are you afraid to tell me? It must be bad. Now i got to hate you. <laughs> then I go into a little controlled thinking. That's how it happens. And then I have another schism. I have more separation. Remember, this is all about separation. Alcohol is not the problem. Alcohol is the solution. And alcohol solves, in an illusionary sense, my separation. Now remember, it's always about drinking. Some people will tell you after step one, it's not about drinking. It's not the truth. In the 12 and 12, it says five different steps. Quote, we may not overcome drinking. In five different steps, including ten, that at step five, if we skip on this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. You see, because what's my solution every time I have a problem? So how can it ever not be about drinking? It's always about the potential of drinking. Sometimes I think we get all caught up in the toxicity of society and we forget one simple little thing. We're here about not drinking. And because I have alcoholism, and the emotionalism is what will drive me back to drink, I have to always be on guard against that, don't I? So that's what the steps do. So steps one through seven have now cleared up the wreckage between me and God. Right? What about you? I've done steps one through seven. I've admitted to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. I've gotten over my resentments, my fears, and my sexual proclivities. At least I've identified them. And I've cleared up my separation with God. Am I done? What happens if I don't clear up my separation with you? Absolutely, and it all starts over again. I go back. As soon as I get to step seven, if that's where I stop, I kept getting in trouble seven years sober. From one to seven years, I kept doing things that I knew I shouldn't be doing, but no matter how hard I tried to will myself, I could not stop. And I didn't understand. I was a runaway train. And I couldn't stop. And the best people could say was I was a loser. That was the best they could say. And it looked like I was. The fact of the matter is, is I was a bundle of untreated alcoholism. That's what I was. And thank God my sponsor didn't judge me. My sponsor understood and got out of my way. He sidestepped me. He loved me unconditionally. He didn't participate. He let me fall. He didn't try to save me. Okay? 
So we get to step seven, humbly asking when we shortcomings. So with a clear recognition of what and who I really am, I'm going to ask God to remove those defects of character, shortcomings, and personality traits. And then I'm going to become, try to do the best to become the... I'm going to ask to remove my shortcomings. The clear recognition of who we really are, follow us, and serve them to become that which we can be. How am I going to become a child of God? I'm in step seven. I've asked God to remove all these things that stand in my way. How do I become a child of God? I'm already a child of God, right? I don't act like one, though, do I? I'm still selfish. I'm still self-centered. I still haven't cleaned up my past, have I? I've only recognized it. So step eight is very serious. Step eight is where I make a list of all persons I've harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Now, some people don't know this, but did you know the eighth step is another three-column inventory? Did you know that? Bill Wilson did another three-column inventory because Father Dowling talked him into it. In the 12 and 12, if you read it, it says in the 12 and 12 that now we redouble our efforts. And at the end of that step, it says that we don't let the pencil falter. And what we're doing in step eight is the part that step four leaves out. You know what step four does? Remember, column one, I'm resentful. Column two, why? What they, what they did to me. Column three is how what they did to me, how it affects me. Correct? And then, because of that threat to me, I retaliated, didn't I? That's not my fault. That's not my fault. It's what they did. you get it? And that's how we're left in step four. So we go to step eight. Who did I hurt? Let's say Larry. That's my brother. Who did I hurt, Larry? What did I do? Blew up his car. He wasn't home. Affects my. Does it affect my security? How I think about myself or you or others mentally, physically, financially, socially? Yeah. Affects me mentally and emotionally because now I'm afraid he's going to find out. Really? Personal relations? I've got no personal relations, so it affects that, right? That's my security instincts. Now what about my, uh, uh, my survival instincts? Air, food, money, or shelter? There's more than that. What other, Jennifer? Safety. You know what air stands for in the survival instincts? It's our space. You remember in the 60s? Get out of my space, man! Get out of my space, man! When it comes to the survival instinct of air, it means our freedom to come and go and do and be as we please. So, if my instinct for air or the freedom to come and go and do and be as I please is threatened, I'll react bad. So, or reproduction, or safety. So, will that threaten my safety if he finds out I did it? Safety. What about my ambitions? Money, power, property, prestige. Money, if he finds out, I gotta buy a car. Right? Now, here's where the eighth step takes care of what the fourth step doesn't take care of. In the fourth step, see, I don't have a conscience. I really don't. I'm an unconscionable person, as are most alcoholics. Most of us have what's, caught, what's called a got-caught conscience. When we get caught, we're very remorseful, very sad, and apologetic. But if we're not caught, we don't care until we're caught. So in step four, we find out that I'm mad at my brother because what he did to me, and this is how it affected me, I've damn well got a reason to be angry, don't I? Now in the eighth step, here's what stops me from hurting other people. I hurt my brother. This is what I did to him, and this is how that action hurt me. 
See, in the eighth step list, we find out how what we do to other people hurts us. And I submit to you, that's the only thing that's going to stop me from hurting other people. It's a real unconscious thing, folks. But that's how I saw it. When I did my eight-step list like this, and I got done with that list of people that I'd caused harm to out of my fourth step, by the time I got done, I thought, you know what? That is really a pain in the butt hurting all them people because I'm paying for it. Now, that's not a virtuous reason, but I submit you at work. I don't want to go around hurting people no more because I know I'm going to end up in column three again. And if you work with someone that you sponsor and they're doing the inventory of harms to others, it's critical that they see that. Because then they'll see a good motivation for not going out hurting people no more. Because if they don't see there's some harm in it for them, why would you stop? I mean, Matt, didn't you try to rob a bank at one time? Was it 7-Eleven? A bar. A way to go. In Fresno, right? With no mask on. Isn't that a rip? The city he lives in, probably drank in that bar, tries to rob the bar and think he's not going to get caught. There's something wrong with that picture. Going back and making amends, you can see how him robbing that thing hurt Matt. I can see how my behavior with my brother hurt me. Because now i got to buy him a car, and i got to go back and make amends to him, and he hasn't made amends to me for what he did to me. So now I can see how my actions cause pain to myself. And by the time I get down to that eight-step list, now I'm faced with the proposition of going out and straightening this all out with everybody. And I've got to tell you something. I was so desperate when I got done, and I so was so willing to be a different person, that when I got done with that, I was ready to go out and make my amends. So when I'm down here writing my list out of who, I'm, who I hurt, right out of the fourth step. And by the way, there'll be some that don't show up in your fourth step. Oh, you all got that book now, right? Uh, go, go to page uh, 20 and 21. Many of us, go ahead, if you don't have a book, come get it. I hope not, they shouldn't be. This one starts out on page one here, I mean, is it backwards? Grab a new one. There you go, well, she was 13 when she got sober, you know. That was better. That's a good one, there you go. See, that's for, are you dyslexic? He got the dyslexic book. Okay, yeah, this one goes. If there's anybody dyslexic, we got a book for you. On page twenty twenty one. Now this this the take a look, there's ten pages where you have ten categories of life. And there's approximately sixty to seventy ideals listed under each one. I'm gonna suggest something to you. If you do that, you will thoroughly do your four step, you'll not leave no stone unturned when you get done. You'll have a thorough eight step list where you won't be able to hide nothing if you're honest with yourself. Because this list came not only from my four-step, but from the four-step of over 500 people I heard their inventories. And these are the most common things that came up. And you notice that R-F-S-F-I-N-E-X? Take a look under category one, spiritual, religious. Go down to item 19, death. Do I have a resentment in relation to the idea of death? In other words, am I mad at somebody because they died? Or am I mad at somebody because someone died in relation to that? If you do check it, next one is fear. Do I have a fear of death? If you do check it. And under S, do I have a sexual experience where death was the result? Well, unless you took a lot of Viagra in your body, you check it. If not, you don't. And under FI, you know what FI stands for? Financial indebtedness. So if you have a debt in relation to this idea, I mean, I'm being absurd when I say debt, it, it could be anything. 
if you have an idea related, check it. And then when you get all done checking them, you go back and everything you check R, you put on your resentment list. Everything you check F, you put on your fear list. Everything you check F goes on your sex inventory. Everything you check FI goes on your harms list because if you owe somebody money, that's a step eight. And if you check EX, which is any personal experience related to this idea where I call harm to another person, you check it. That's part of your eight step. So if you do this, I promise you it will be thorough and convincing and you won't leave anything out. Uh, that's how I do it. Okay? That's your four step and eight step. Right? Let's see. Now on your eight step, when you go to your, when you go to your parts A, B, and C, you'll see there under part A, it's your motives instead of, instead of that other outline that says motives. Selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, considered, resentful, and afraid. You're just checking them to remind yourself. Page 49. I forgot you guys all got books now. Page 49. Now, by the way, before you mark these, photocopy it so that you can reuse these. Just photocopy the page so that you can reuse it. And, uh, if you've got somebody you want to copy for, feel free to copy it. All I ask is that you don't make bulk of these and sell them because I don't make no money off them. I don't want you to either. Yeah. Yeah, if you want to put these together for free and give it to a friend to use, please feel free. You got my permission. What? Provided for free. That's right. Put a little disclaimer in the back. That says, yeah, I worked out I'm making money off this workshop. It doesn't bother me at all. Then. Now, under part D, see, remember how we got ready in the first step where we were looking at A, D, and C to find out our old ideas, new ideas? Okay, now step A, we're further along. Part D is we're still looking for the old idea. We're still trying to look for feelings of separation. And we're still looking at negative personality traits because we're going to have them for as long as we live. And then we go to part C, which is once again, where we're going to look for a new idea to replace the old injurious idea. We're going to look for the positive personality traits you can find in the back of this book. And then you're going to look for the most applicable spiritual principle you may apply to resolve this situation. The reason you write it out is so that it becomes real. And then after you write it out, then you try to act it out. Write it out, act it out. Write it out, act it out. Okay, and then over here is just a little thing, what type of amendments do and action I will take to make the amend. That's just sort of a, hopefully a trick to get them to do it. Then on page 50, if you turn it over, you'll see that financial restitution list. Back in your fourth step, under F, under uh, the uh, oh, where's the column? Under uh, column next to column one, you'll number your resentments, right? Right. If you owe any money because of that, then you just transfer that right to this restitution list. And there's a there's a financial guide in the back of here that you can help yourself keep track of who you owe financial amends to and keep track of it. It's just something for me because I kind of needed something to to guide me. Okay. Any questions? Now we're looking for faulty emotions. Yes, put your hand up. Well, let's say that uh, uh, I said to Marcus in front of all of you that I think he's a snake in the grass. He's a group and he's got AIDS. Right? So, two days later, I come up to him privately and say, gee, Marcus, I'm sorry I said that. Have I made them in? My sponsor tells me I've got to find all of you and make it right. I've got to come to the society of his peers where I made the injury and I've got to tell you publicly that I lied. 
and then I made that up, and Marcus is really a good guy. Of course, I complicate that with another lie by saying that. <laughs> you understand? That's the difference between a social amendment and a personal amendment. A personal amendment is just making an amend to you directly, a direct amend. But there's a lot of people that don't know that. I've had my character assassinated in public by people, and here's a good example. I was accused of making money off this workshop, and it's not true. I don't get paid a dime. But a lot of people believe it now because they heard it from people who have a reputation. Some people believe I'm making money off this now. And I spend a lot of time saying, no, I don't, no, I don't, no, I don't. But if you want an alcoholic to believe something, just whisper it to them. And the truth of the matter is, my character's been hurt a little bit because they believe it. Because if I hear people making money off AA, I'll judge them too. Because we're supposed to do this for fun and for free. Now, this person's made amends to me. But he hasn't done a thing to straighten it out publicly and socially. So all those people that are carrying that gossip to another person is just going to keep going until he goes public, perhaps from the podium, and says, I lied. You understand what I'm saying? That's different between the social and the personal. Do you live in the Midnight Mission? Okay, what? Just wanted to clarify his posture before he asked the question. That's none of our business or responsibility, right? They make it right socially if they're supposed to. There's nothing you can do about it. No. No, because my subject doesn't have to mind my own business and not defend myself. So I don't, I don't want to just come across, I'm not trying to defend myself. It's just it is what it is. But I don't know how you feel about this workshop, but I think it's important. And if people think I'm making money, they won't invite me to come do this. And then whatever the message is, it doesn't get delivered. Because I would be one who would not schedule a speaker if I knew they were making money off it. I mean, I know a couple of speakers that are selling, selling tapes of, of, of things they do outside AA right while they talk. And I wouldn't invite them to come talk at my AA group because they're, they're using AA to promote their... That'd be like me coming in here and setting up my games that I sell, that I make. Wouldn't it be clear I come in here and do a workshop for fun and for free, and I just set up this little display with my games? That wouldn't be right. That's prostituting AA. And so I would hope that they would make it right, but it's, you can't make anybody make amends that ain't ready. You know, we have to pay for them because they're sick people. Yes. Absolutely. I think you should drink. <laughs> Sincerely, it did. But i got to tell you something. That means that I am seeking my own forgiveness. I hope that he'd come get mine. See, the thing about unconditional love is I can love my brother whether he forgives me or not, or whether he makes amends to me or not. You know, if he could do better, he'd do better. You always got to bear in mind that they're children of God, too. If you are, they are. So you got to remember, if he could do better, he'd do better. And that's where we get grace. We, you know, in step 11, we'll talk about that in a little bit. In step 11, we get grace. We get power. We get the power to forgive people for things they never make amends for. Because we know in our heart that if they could do better, they'd do better. If they were a child of God and knew it and were connected, they would come make amends. If my, if my brother believed he needed to and had the strength to do it, he would. I'm not putting my brother down by telling you guys that story. I'm telling you that's the state he's in. And does it bother me today? It doesn't bother me today at all. We don't have a relationship, though. You know why? It's not because of me. I'd be willing to go to my brother's house right now. But he can't have me in it. He doesn't know why. He thinks it's because I'm still crazy. I'm not going to ask you if I appear crazy to you, but... Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not crazy, but he says I'm crazy. And that's his way of not having me in his house, and I feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for him because he can't deal with me being there because he feels uncomfortable about our past. So that's the price he pays. That's none of my business. My business is about how I serve other people 
and how I show AA works. Because we're all a walking example of how good AA works, good, bad, or indifferent. That's right. It ain't about your brother at all. It's not about my brother. It's about how do I do? How do I deal with him? He doesn't have to make amends to me. He may never. But if I'm not going to love him anyway, then I'm judgmental. And I'm holding him accountable. And as soon as I hold him accountable, I've lost my right to forgiveness in the spiritual world. That's an interesting thing. See, forgiveness is forgiveness. You either got it or you don't. And I'll tell you something. When we get into the 11th step, we find out through the prayer of St. Francis that my job is to seek for forgiveness through forgiving others. That's how I get it. And I'll tell you that little story around uh, this thing about sponsoring women. I'll, I'll tell you about that in a minute. You'll have a little more clarity. We get redemption in funny ways. I mean, my kids were all on my list. I hurt all my kids terribly. Thank God I didn't hit any of them or I didn't physically abuse them. But I might just as well. The emotional abuse is ten times worse than physical abuse any time, I think. But I still abuse my kids. So when they're on my eight step list, I've got to go make amends to them. I've got to clear away the wreckage of my past. How do I get redemption for the things I did to my kids? How, I mean, when I steal the childhood of a little girl, how do you get that back? You can't. You can't give it back. The only thing I can do is try to give it back to somebody else. I didn't know that. I found out through experience. What time did we start? 1.30. Okay, we can, we can kind of start on step 10. Step 10. What? Step 9. What about if you're a uh, big thinker? What if I'm thinking bad about other people? I mean, does that, do you need to make amends to them? Did you think bad? Yeah. I mean, not gossiping, but just thinking what a loser they are or something, you know. So that's called judgmentalness. Right. And you need to inventory that. Of course. Of course. Well, why did you ask me the question? Well, I mean, See, I told you, put him up front. I'm going to get you. Oh, shh. Thirteen. I just got to keep remembering that. But if you gossip, you need to then. Well, absolutely, because then it's a harm. If you think, does anybody in this room think bad about other people? Yeah. Well, unless you, unless you, you have your hand up. And you, and you hurt somebody way in your past, and you know they moved, and you moved, and you have no idea where they live. How are you supposed to make amends to a, a person like that? You stand, you become willing to, to be ready when the time presents itself. It's like if you have an amend to make. This is just my experience. Other people have different experiences. But if I have an amend to make, and the person is not accessible to me, then I have to wait and be ready to make that amend. And only you know if you're really ready to do it. In other words, if God gives you the opportunity, are you really ready to take that action? I submit you'll be okay if you are. I mean, I've got amends I can't make in this lifetime. Uh, I'm getting ready to go to my mom and dad's grave in May. Well, actually, I have to put it off until June because of circumstances. But I'm going to go to my mom and dad's grave to make another set of amends to them and to tell them about my life today, about the things that are going on. And I've got a nephew, Sticky, that uh, he's dead because of me. That's a tough call. Uh, how do you get over the death of a nephew when it's your fault? It wasn't murder, but I was responsible for him dying. And how do I how do I make amends for that? How do you do that? When you're a coward and you're afraid of everything. Well, God works in mysterious ways. All you got to do is be willing to make the amends. I believe that the God of my understanding loves me no matter what. That's the real unconditional love. He's just waiting for me to say I'm ready to change. And I can't make amends too skippy. 
But I can make amends for Shifty if I'm willing when God puts it in my path. So I'm working at the psychiatric hospital, and uh, I wasn't physically the size I am now. I only weighed about 150 pounds, scared to death of everything, don't like to fight, run at, it, run at the drop of a hat. And uh, they got me down in the chronic wing with the insane people. <laughs> I wonder why. And uh, they got this guy down there named David so-and-so, and uh, he hates women. And, of course, they, somebody slipped up and let him go to the cafeteria with Nurse Julie. And Julie was one of my favorite nurses at Broadlands Hospital. And uh, then he got back, and he smuggled a knife back from the, from the cafeteria. Now, my job was to observe, hit the cold green button, and get the hell out of the way. And not to take, and that suited me just fine. That's the job I want. Because I'm scared. I don't want to deal with no reality right now. And so all of a sudden I hear this terrible scream coming from David's room, and I know Julie's in there, and I wanted to go the other way. My impulse was to run. And I started to run, and something stopped me, and I ran into the room, and David had stuck her in the shoulder right, right beneath her neck, and I was getting ready to stab her in the top of her head. And I saw myself jump on top of him, and I kind of overreacted just a little. And, uh, I didn't know how strong I was, and I literally, I don't want to get dramatic, but I just picked him up over my head and threw him into the ceiling. And, uh, cause he turned the knife on me. And, they, they have history, I'll tell you in a minute. And, uh, they credited me for saving her life. And I didn't get it. And, you know, they gave me a certificate for doing something I wasn't being paid, yada, 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 yada. My sponsor said, you just made up for Skippy. And, uh, you know, my sponsor heard my fifth step after that priest did. My sponsor knows that stuff. And as soon as he knew what had happened, he said, you just got redemption for Skippy. That's an interesting fact, don't you think? Because I was a coward. And it's interesting to know that six months after that, I was on the sheriff's department. Isn't that interesting? I wasn't afraid no more. Something happened. And uh, as far as the women go, I've got four daughters, and uh, I was in Des Moines, Iowa, and I don't want to go into all that story, but uh, I was in court one day, and one of the gals got sentenced to me through the court system, because I talked to judge and had given her a chance in AA, and it ended up the judge basically sentenced her to me. And when I told the judge that when you're in AA, men don't sponsor women, the judge told me he wasn't in AA. <laughs> and... Uh, and then a few weeks later, I sponsored Jennifer right there. Or was I sponsoring you first? That's right. Civil War. Uh, I started sponsoring Donna, who was 19. Then I started sponsoring Jennifer, who was 21, after she drug her boyfriend down the street, tied to his window. Uh, so within like two months, I sponsored four women. And three of them are the same ages as my daughters. And now they've all gone to college. They've all some degree or another graduated college. Donna's going to graduate with her social degree in May. And uh, I don't feel bad about my kids anymore to that degree. I know I've gotten redemption because God put them four women in my life to work with. And even though people said you can't do that, it's against AA, that's all fear talking. That's fear. I'm not going to live my life in fear anymore. God gave me an opportunity to do the right thing with women. And I found the ability to do that somehow. And now I'm proud of them as though they were my own daughters. I mean, I've, I've watched them grow up in AA, and now I sponsor other women. It's a disease, you know. It's like, yes, Shelby? Nope. It's suggested in Living Sober. It says we have found that men working with women or yada yada can cause emotional entanglements, but nowhere does it say don't do it. 
That's fear talking. And, and experience. Fear out of experience. A lot of people have fear because bad things can happen. But you know what? Alcohol is a big persuader. Guarantee if I make a mistake of that magnitude, I'll drink or I'll make a mess and not do it again. Good? Well, I don't get into all that rhetoric. That's just all rationalization anyway. The fact is that some people don't approve of it, and I'm okay with that. I, I think that it's worthy of judgment to a degree because it's not normal. I mean, today there's, today that doesn't hold water because there's enough women to sponsor women and enough men to sponsor men. But there's just, I want to pose an idea to you. Uh, if a man came in here today and said, I hate men, if I have to have a man sponsor, I will drink, who would have the nerve to say, go drink then until you're ready? Who would have the nerve? But what if he looked at you and said, will you sponsor me? And his life hangs in the balance? I hope to God you'd say yes. Because eventually he'll probably get a guy once he's over his attitude. But I would rather say, I'm not, and I'm not defending my position, I'm just sharing experience. I would rather we get out of the fear. And remember, we're just alcoholics and we're all children of God and let's try to help each other. Now, taking off your clothes on a 12-step call is not part of sponsorship. <laughs> But it's part of life. I mean, if it happens, let's try to get over it. Let's not point fingers at people. Let's just try to do the right thing and get over it. You know what I'm saying? Because it's really life. But I don't want to disrupt your little comedy there. That must be Allison Bennett over I'll tell you. Okay. I, I, Julie, you're being awful quiet. Are you sleeping? Uh-huh. I sponsor all five of those women, and, I'm, and six, and Sheila. And I'm proud of it. I'm not bragging. I'm just, and seven, there's Linda. And, uh, and I sponsor a bunch of these guys, too. In other words, I just sponsor alcoholics. I don't care what shape they're in. I don't care what color, what religion. I just want to work with alcoholics. And in step 12, I'll tell you why. It's not an evil thing with me. It's very difficult doing it. And sometimes it's a damn curse. But here's, a, here's let me add this to you. When I did my amends list, uh, how many times did I tell you I was arrested for domestic violence? Nine times? I was terrible with women. It's terrible. I'm not going to candy coat it. I was despicable. And I'll tell you something. I'm not that same man. By working with women, and I'm not telling you if you're, a, if you're a domestic violator like me, to go out and sponsor 15 women, it'll fix you. But I'm telling you, over the course of the past 10 years, I have seen women differently. They're not a threat to me anymore. You know, I went to domestic violence class. This kind of deviates a bit, but let me go there anyway. I went to domestic violence class a lot. And at every place I heard what a bad guy I was and what a sissy I was to hit a woman. And nobody figured it out. Nobody figured it out. I came to AA, and I was doing an inventory with someone, and we figured it out. He said to me, he said, you're not hitting a woman. He says, I believe you've never hit a woman in your entire life. And my, my denture almost fell out. Because I've heard what a piece of crap I am. And I believe it because I'm guilty. You know what he says to me? He says, you've never hit a woman. And he had my attention. And he said, what you've hit is a threat. And you don't see a woman, do you? First person ever said that to me. Because the truth of the matter is, when I get violent like that, I don't see sex. I don't see color. I don't see age. could be a little boy. I, I don't see animal. When I get angry and my defects kick in, I strike what's nearest. And usually it's somebody I love. And you know what? Since I realized that, I haven't hit a woman since I've been sober. Because I realize that women aren't a threat to me unless I let them be. And since I realized that, I don't have to hit women. Now, if you're a man and you're like that, that's news. That's news. And I found that out in steps 10, 11, and 12. And it freed me. And working with these other women have allowed me to learn how to treat women as though they were my own kids. And then as I grew up with them, I learned that it's a mutual give and take thing. That there's very little difference between you and I. 
that we relate to each other almost the same way, because you're a child of God just like I do. We just got different bumps, that's all there is to it. We all have need. We all need to feel needed, wanted, and loved. Every one of us. Is there anybody in this room that doesn't need to feel needed, wanted, and loved? Every one of us need to feel needed, wanted, and loved. It's just that we all go about it different ways. Um, Except Todd. <laughs> if I haven't completed my eighth step list, you haven't either. Right. right. But I know I've caused harm to some people. Complete your eighth step list first. Because if you don't, you'll make the wrong amendment, I guarantee it. What? Yeah, IBSPM. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> yes. Can you respond to have two minutes? Depends on who you are, I suppose. He, uh, the question by Frank was, can you have too many sponsees? I suppose. I don't know. I sponsor 35. And it's the easiest job in the world. They do all the work. <laughs> really, I think some people can, given their lifestyle. Some, here's, let me put it this way so that it's not negative, coming from me. I think that God puts us in different positions to be of service at different levels. I think some people are at a, in a position in their life where if they sponsor two people, that's plenty. If they work with more than that, it's too much. Then there's people like me that God blesses us with an abundance of neurotic energy. And and they save our lives. Do you know why? Because I'm sicker than most. I'm sicker than most. Except Matt, that's right. See, Matt? Ha! And uh, I need more medicine. And that medicine comes in the form of the 12 step. I don't want to get into the 12 step yet. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But uh, I guess that's an individual thing. It just depends on how bad I need help. Yeah, remember, I'm not working with people to help them. See, that's the, that's, I'm not sponsoring people to help them. I'm not a therapist. I don't do AA therapy. I'm just a sponsor. And I'm doing it to save their life. I remember when I was trying to save them. You know, when I first started sponsoring people so I could help them. You ever tried to help somebody? I grabbed this unsuspecting newcomer by the throat. By the throat. And lifted him up along the wall and I said, Listen, asshole! If you want what I got, you got to do what I did. And this is what I heard. I don't want a goddamn thing you got. <laughs> and that crushed me. It really did. So I let the loser go. And I went running to my sponsor. I said, Buddy, he said, you don't want nothing I got. He says, Look around the room. None of them do either. <laughs> But he said, you hang in here long enough, you're bound to find someone like Matt to walk in to work with. <laughs> and what I found out is I'm not saving their life by working with them. The more I work with them, the more I get to see myself. Remember, all the inventory process is about is uncovering and discovering. So that I can see the makeup that causes me to do the things I do and to react the way I react. It's the actions I take in relation to that that determine somebody's like putting miracle grow on your own program. Get in a relationship and see how recovered you really are. Lends new meaning to the word love. We're going to read on page 119 the rules for dating in AA. Don't listen. Close your ears. You'll never get a date. It's the toughest thing you'll ever see. Page 119 and 12 and 12. When my sponsor showed me that, I didn't think I'd ever get to date again as long as I lived. But we'll look at that when we get to step 12. If you look at it now, you might leave it to break. <laughs> Unless you're married. Julie? Nope. A whole different set of thoughts. 
Okay, you, once you once you're done with the four step, you leave it alone and you just take those that you circle Y, you put the name. Once you've done the four step, it's done. I suggest to you that, especially if you use that guide, those ten pages, if you use that, I submit you'll never have to take another four step. I haven't taken one for 14 years now because it was thorough. And because I keep up with the tenth step, there's no need to go back and do another four step. There's just no need. Sometimes we just don't do a thorough inventory and we always race back to the four step as being the cause of our problems rather than my willfulness. I don't agree with it. Some people tell me that addiction and alcoholism is the same thing, but it's not. Alcohol by its nature is not an addictive drug. Alcohol by its very nature is not an addictive drug. Nine out of ten people can safely use it. Nine out of ten. One out of ten have this genetic predisposition of the enzyme factor and the phenomenon of craving. If ten people smoke crack, you're going to have ten little crack addicts. Valium, do you know any social valium takers? Do you know any social heroin users? I mean, I don't want to get into a controversy because it always sparks a controversy. I think that might be what you're doing, but I'll humor you. If you take the addictive world, see, remember what my condition is. What's my four symptoms? Remember this. Please don't forget this. I don't fit in. I don't belong. I'm not a part of what's wrong with me. I've got nothing against those who are drug addicts. But I've never done drugs. I don't live in that world, and I get uncomfortable in that world because I don't sit there, and I don't trust them. I don't know if it's because of the way they look, the way they live. And I'm not being judgmental. I'm just telling you I'm not like them. And because I'm not like that culture, I don't feel like I fit, and it causes a threat to arise in me, and I leave. And that's the big difference, is we come from two different worlds. That's why when we're in Alcoholics Anonymous, I can relate with an alcoholic. I know I'm in the right room. And now don't don't run out of here and say I put down addicts because I'm not. That's not it at all. It's just like going to an overeaters convention. I went to, I have to tell on myself. 1985, I went to the OA International Convention in San Francisco with a sponsee who had joined OA. He's a little overweight, 500 pounds. And uh, he introduced me because it was great. The founder was, she was walking down the hallway and I knew she was the founder because she had this ribbon that said founder. <laughs> I couldn't leave that alone. My defects took over. And I'm sitting in the room. True, true story. They're sitting there talking around sugar and eating and puking and purging and, and, and talking about, it's like eat the goddamn Twinkies and leave me alone. That's a terrible thing. And it offended them. And it should have offended them. I don't identify with them at all. I don't fit in. They don't want to hear about my drinking stories over there because it makes them uncomfortable. So the specific difference is, is each different group of 12 cent people, except for two, the Alanas and the AAs, we get along pretty good because we come from the same cloth. But alcoholics and addicts, two separate entities, don't blend. It seems like they should, but they don't. Because it's not the same thing. Any other questions? You, you, absolutely. Absolutely. But if you're trying, you're busy trying to say it's the same thing, it's not. Only young people who say it's the same thing are those that are duly addicted. Really? I haven't heard an alcoholic yet tell me alcohol and drugs are the same thing. Only those people who get duly addicted say it's the same thing because they want it to be the same thing. And it's not. And I'm not going to comfort them or pacify them by agreeing with them when I know it's not the truth. Because if you take ten people and put them in a room with, with ten gallons of whiskey, 
One of them's going to stay in there with all of it. Ten's going to leave when they get bored. You put cocaine or heroin or narcotic or uh, Darvacet or Valium or something in that room, and all ten of them's going to be fighting for more because it's just naturally addictive. See, addiction's not my problem. I stand here today and never got addicted to alcohol. So how can that be true? Never got addicted to alcohol. But I had that obsession in my mind, that craving for the effect produced. I want to be normal. That's why I almost left that age, because I didn't understand that fact. I wasn't drinking for an addiction. I mean, Donna was 13 when she got sober. How could she got addicted to alcohol? Can't happen. Not at 13. Jennifer got sober, what, 18, 19? Can't happen. Can't get addicted at 18 to alcohol by nature. You'd have to drink gallons of whiskey or something to get physically addicted to ethyl hydroxide. It's that effect produced by alcohol that fills that void of the spiritual maladjustment that causes us to be alcoholic. Unless you're an alcoholic. A Dr. Bob type? Now we got them to get addicted to alcohol. They get addicted to ethyl hydroxide. And they qualify for AA too because they're alcoholic. But that's where it separates the line. But yeah, the alcoholic and addicts fit in here real good because you've got alcoholism. The problem is, is in AA is a lot of addicts try to force their drug talk in AA and they want us to accept it. And that's where the... I used to work in treatment a long time ago. And I was part of that and I'm sure sorry I was. Of the, of the, of the word usage. See, if you say alcohol and drugs are the same thing, then you have permission to talk about it all, don't you? And that's where that comes from. We in AA don't want them talking about drugs. We mention it, but we don't want to hear about drugs, not because we're against it, but because we don't identify. And some people say that, well, everybody's using drugs now. That's not the truth. That's not true. So that's all stuff that seeps in here and can cause separation. Because if I leave AA and drink, because it's no longer AA, that's a tragedy. Because AA was made for alcoholics. NA was made for narcotic addicts. CA was made for cocaine addicts. So if you have those different problems, go make those programs as good as they should be. And let's leave AA just AA. But people have a problem with that for some reason. That, that pride kicks in. That belligerence and that defiance where you have to accept me no matter what. And in fact, we do. Okay? Oh, we do. Any other questions? What time did we start? I have, I have CRS. You know what that stands for? Can't remember stuff. Okay, step 10. So, what have we done? We have gone through nine steps. Okay. Now, Here's the idea of God. Right? I've tapped into the source of the power now. I have cleared away the calamity, the pop, and the worship in steps four through nine. What's going to keep it from coming back? Am I going to stop acting bad just because I took steps one through nine? I mean, how many of us have judged people who come to AA and do bad things? I mean, how many of us have looked at other people and said, when are they going to get with a program? I mean, we all have done it silently and quietly. Um, how many people quit smoking in here that used to smoke? Have any of you snarled at people who smoke? Or judged them as being not spiritually fit? I did. After I quit smoking, I became pretty spiritual. I was a miracle. And I decided that if you still smoke, you must have an emotional dependency somewhere not worthy of my attendance. 
And that is separation of the worst kind. Because then it's, oh, you, you have sex out of marriage? Pervert. As I go off to the bookstore. I mean, we are phenomenal people, i got to tell you. Step 10 was designed by Father Ed Dowling. For Bill Wilson. Though Bill Wilson didn't know that. It's an interesting thing. The six tenets of the Oscar group don't allow for step ten. And that's why Bill Wilson, in my opinion, got sicker and sicker and sicker. Just because he wasn't taking daily inventory. Even though he wrote it, he wasn't doing it. He didn't continue to look for the flaws in his makeup as they appeared. See, step ten is... A, you know what step ten is? I didn't need to do that. Step ten is what? Another three thousand inventory, isn't it? Didn't step ten continue to take personal inventory? And we were wrong, promptly admitted it. So step ten is a continuation of what? Step four. So step one now is who or what is the problem? Problem. What's the cause of that problem? And affects mine. And then the ABCs. Right? This is where we get to actually start growing and changing. This is where if we do it every day, I promise you, just like the big book says, it will become a working part of our mind. I'll tell you, I can wheel off a 10 step like that. Case in point. Problem. Anger. And hurt. That seemed to be the problem. Tuesday. Last Tuesday. Let me tell you something. I've got a son that's going to be 12 in May. And my son's mother married a guy that I used to sponsor a number of years ago. I moved to California six years ago. They filed for adoption of Zachary calling me an unfit parent saying I abandoned him and abused him, which none of it's true. Um, so they were suing me for adoption not custody, adoption as a dangerous man. And she was going to bring in my first seven years of sobriety. And I was facing 20 years in prison for something I did during that seven years. So I met with my sponsor and I had a solution. You want to hear it? See, if Charles is dead, he can't adopt my son. How serious it was. Had a plane ticket in my back pocket, 21 years sober. Three Saturdays ago, I had a plane ticket in my back pocket to go take care of business. I called my sponsor. My sponsor talked to me about it. I consulted a lawyer. And I'm having a real problem here. Charles seemed to be my problem. Why? Wants to adopt my son. Now, I'm not a racist. But it occurred to me he's black. That's the problem. Then it became a black man wants to adopt my son. That made me crazy. And I'm not a racist. You see, I started looking for reasons to get him, didn't I? Immediately. That's how fast my mind works. That fast in an instant. My mind is working. I call my sponsor and he says, call your son and ask him what he wants. That wouldn't have occurred to me. Yeah, that wouldn't have occurred to me. So 
so last Sunday I called my son, or last Sunday, yeah, and Zachary said he wanted me to let him be adopted. And it cut my heart to pieces. So Tuesday I go to court. And I'm doing a 10 step right in front of the judge. As I'm watching the judge, I realize I'm hurt is what I am. Because Zachary wants to be adopted. It affects how I think about myself, how I feel about myself, and how I'm afraid other people will look at me. What's my part? Am I going to be selfish? Am I going to be dishonest? Am I going to be self-seeking? Am I going to be inconsiderate? Or am I going to do what my son wants? And my sponsor directed me to sign the papers. And so I'm in front of the judge waiting to be judged. And the judge told me he respected me. I never got angry. I never lost control. I had total grip of my emotions the whole time. And I signed the papers. I left the court. And then thought about killing Charles again. And that's normal. You know something? You want to hear that? That's normal. I want you to know, if you were judging me a minute ago, because I said I wanted to kill him, i got to tell you, that's a normal reaction. To even earth people. A normal earth dad would have felt like that. And I need to know that. I couldn't have done that if I hadn't have taken a tenth step while I was doing it. Now, what personality trait was involved? I could have went into a negative trait and been uh, demanding, confrontative, combative, argumentative. I could have went through a litany of attitudes that I could have flipped them and charged cost them a lot of money to fight it. You know what I'm saying? And instead, I went right to the positive and did the thing I didn't want to do. And I signed the papers. And when I left there, I remember I got home. And when I got home Tuesday night, I want you to hear this. I'll never hear the end of this. But I got home, and there was flowers at my doorstep. Some of the people I sponsored had them there because they knew I was in court that day. And so when I got home, there was this bouquet of flowers at my door from people I sponsored. AA works. But the inventory is what stopped me from getting emotional. It kept me out of the emotion. And if you've never been through an experience like that, hope the guys don't ever have to. But don't judge it until you've walked in those shoes because it's probably the most painful decision I've ever made in my life. But I got through it with that inventory. I mean, I'm standing there with my friend Mark taking inventory, one after the other, so that I could walk out of that courtroom with dignity and self-respect and be a good example of AA. And so now I take another inventory. Now i got to take an inventory about how I feel about it. Well, you can't really do that. So what I have to do is take it a day at a time. That's my inventory. I'll just take it a day at a time and let God play it out. And know that I did the right thing for myself and for my son. And you know what? Anything else is rhetoric. But that's how important the 10th step is. And it's important that it becomes a working part of my mind because here's what happened. That overrode my emotion. That's never happened to me before. My emotions have always overrode me. One other time, see, I believe in talking about myself. I can't take your inventory. I was sober about 10 years as a police officer. had lots of guns. And I got a phone call that my daughter had attempted suicide. Now, my relative was stupid enough to tell me why. Apparently, my brother-in-law had sexually assaulted her while she was babysitting. And I, of course, got mad because I wasn't there to protect her. But I didn't say that. Uh, but she attempted suicide because she was afraid if I found out that I would kill him. And I would go to jail and she would lose me forever. So instead of telling me, she kept it inside until she had to try to kill herself. So when I got the call that she was in intensive care, 
ripped in and put guns in my car and headed out of town with a decision. And you know what's an interesting thing? When you really make a decision, there's peace. Conflict ends when you make a decision. And I had made my decision. I was on the way out of town. And for some reason, I stopped at the midnight meeting at Fleur and Grand, where we're from. I didn't mean to. Stopped at the midnight meeting. Sat there. Thought about how I was going to get him. Acquired myself a gun with no initial, with no serial numbers because that was going to get me off the hook. And I'm on my way. I get to the hospital. It's early in the morning. My daughter's in intensive care. She's laying on a gurney in a coma. There's uh, black charcoal stuff all over the floor where she puked it up where he tried to pump her stomach. And so my, my ex left the room so I could sit with her for a while. And I'm sitting there holding my daughter's hand. And she comes out of the coma while I'm sitting there holding her hand. And she looked at me. She didn't say, hi, Dad. Glad you're here. She says, you're going to kill him, aren't you, Dad? And I looked her in the eye and I said, as soon as I leave here. I told the truth. She looked at me and she says, why? He didn't hurt you. He hurt me. I should have asked her to sponsor me. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting. My daughter forgave me. You know what my daughter said? Who has gone to hundreds of meetings with me? My daughter says if he wasn't sick, he wouldn't have done that. My daughter forgave him. And he was taken out. He was a preacher of the church. And he was taken out of that church for a year. He got therapy. And he's back at the church doing what he's supposed to do. And my daughter sometimes attends that church. My daughter learned this program quicker than I did. But the point is, is that that inventory process unconsciously stops me from taking actions I normally would react to because I can go through that cycle as though it was a working part of my mind. <clears throat> so I'm looking for those. It's a constant vigilance. Let me, let me see what i got here on the 10th. I think it's time to want to read something here. This is such an important step. you got your problem, probably you can join me. Let me just read this. The, on steps on page 88, the first paragraph, it says, As we work the first nine steps of AA, we prepare ourselves for the adventure of a new life. So obviously, we're letting go of the old life, and we're preparing for a new one. <clears throat> when we approach step 10, we commence to put our AA way of living to practical use day by day. Then comes the acid test, and here's the goal. We, can we stay sober, keep an emotional balance, and live to good purpose under all conditions? Now, that doesn't say except when my daughter tries to commit suicide. It says to keep fit and to live to good purpose and emotional balance under all conditions. And then it tells me how to do it. A continuous look at my assets and liabilities and a real desire to learn and grow by this means are necessities for us. Down at the bottom of that paragraph, it says, Until he is able to admit and accept what he finds, and until he patiently and persistently tries to correct what is wrong, that's when you can make much of your life. And that's how I've made much of mine. Over on page 89, at the bottom of the page, it says, The emphasis on inventory is heavy only because a great many of us have never really acquired the habit of accurate self-appraisal. How many of us have taken a look at ourselves and beat ourselves in the head? Being bad. Being bad. I'm no good. It says accurate self-appraisal. In other words, no judgment. Instead of judging myself, how about if I just look at my strengths and weaknesses, the things I make a mistake, and allow myself to be human? We are the last people to let ourselves be human. I'm not saying give myself permission to go out there and do bad things. I'm saying that when I make a mistake, honestly look at myself and say, what can I do to make this right? And if I have an amend do, go make the doggone thing. Because on a daily basis I do that. Well, I'll tell you, what, there's a little system that... Uh, 
you'll see. Oh, you all got books, don't you? Okay. Go to page 53. What we're trying to do in steps 10, 11, 12 is gain emotional sobriety. Remember, we've got, we've got physical sobriety now. All we've got to find is the emotional sobriety. That part of the ism we need to recover from. It says, 10, 11, 12 enable us to form a right relationship with and reliance upon God as we understand Him and a healthy interdependence upon others. Therefore, through the process of steps 10, 11, 12, we experience a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance and growth of our spiritual condition. So the way we get that maintenance and growth of our spiritual condition is to continue to do these steps on a daily basis. So we just go through it every day just like we did a fourth step only when we're disturbed. If you go back to the back of this booklet, I'll tell you, on page 86. Go back, go back to page 86. I review this every day. There's 12 sentences there. It's kind of ironic how many 12 there are in this program. There's 12 sentences there. And it says, if I answer yes to number one, two, or three, or no to number ten, or written ten step inventories indicated and suggested ideally before day's end. So I go through that list at night. It says, was I selfish, dishonest, and certain resentful, afraid today? If I was, I probably need to make an amend. Do I owe an apology? That obviously requires a tenth step. Am I keeping something to myself now? We call that secrets. Which should be discussed with another person at once. That would require a tenth step. And did my actions today indicate that I have ceased fighting anything or anyone? Those all indicate then I need to take an inventory. Now, here's how I learned to stop being impulsive. Does anybody out there have impulsive problems? Acting on impulse? Rule impulse control? Think star. I mean, I did some real silly things that I thought of in my head. No one gave them to me. They just occurred to me. That's why I say they're silly. But I put a star on my watch for two years. Stand for S-T-A-R. Just put this in your pocket. It worked for me. Stop, think, assess, and respond. That, that worked for me. When I started feeling my emotions engaging, I would try to stop and pull away from whatever I was doing. I wasn't very successful at first. But I would at least be aware of it. I would stop and think about what the hell I'm doing. And if I had to, I'd make a phone call. That's what assess stands for. What am I doing? What's going on here? Before I react. So I'd rather respond than react any day. Because remember, in column three affects my... I'm always reacting to the threat, aren't I? Well, see, in step 10, I'm learning now that I don't have to react to the threat. I can respond to it. When someone seems to be threatening me, maybe that's not what they're doing. Have any of you mistakenly misjudged the threat? Maybe you thought somebody was talking bad about you and he's really giving you a compliment and they just gave it a different way. Or maybe somebody wasn't talking about me at all, but I thought they were. And so I yelled at him or said something, you're a real asshole, you know what? And they were being nice to me. But because of my perception of reality, I thought they were being mean to me. And what the reality is, I have to stop and I have to think about what's going on. I have to look at this. What's really going on here? And when I'm new at it, I have to have help. And so I have to pull myself off. Maybe i got to call my sponsor. If my sponsor is not available, i got to call somebody I trust. i got to say, here's what's going on. I'll tell you something. The past few weeks, I've been on one of these with someone else just riding along it's fun to watch and I've had to call my sponsor more in the past three weeks or a month over my career over changes in my lifestyle and in my job I've had to call my sponsor more in the past month 21 years sober than I did the previous three years 
And that's because I want to make sure I see what's going on. I want to make sure I'm not deluded. I want to make sure that what I think I see is what I see, and I trust my sponsor, so I want him to either agree with me or not agree with me. And by the way, I've given my, my sponsor permission to disagree with me. I've given my sponsor permission to tell me he thinks I'm full of pucky. I've given my sponsor permission to take my inventory. I've given him my permission to raise his voice to me, because sometimes he has to be louder than my thinking. Have you ever been in that situation where the thinking is just so loud nobody can penetrate it with reason? I want my sponsor to be able to reach me, so I gave him that permission. So sometimes when I can't see it, I have to call him. So again, I wear that star for two years. I don't have one no more because that's a working part of my mind now. I run around with star IRS. I know it might sound silly to you, but if it works, why fix it? That worked for me. And it helped me to be able to stop my out-of-emotional control, especially where relationships are involved. And we're going to find out in step 11 and 12 that they're all about personal relations. Because you see, I'm not separated no more, am I? Now I'm in God's world. Now I'm here. And my feet are down to their right size now. And I'm, I'm waving. And I've grown hair. I'm in God's world now. Step 10, 11, and 12, I want to stay there. But if I start acting bad, and I don't make amends, I start moving out again. And I start feeling that anxious apartness. And what happens is I begin to feel like maybe I don't fit here. So what happens if you steal a coffee kit at your home group? I've done it. It's hard to feel like you belong. It is. But I didn't mean nothing by it. But then all of a sudden, well, how about when you start skipping meetings? It's hard to come back, isn't it? It's hard to come back. And we don't even know why. Why is there? Some people call it false pride. You know what it really is, I think? As I start skipping meetings... I know I'm guilty of abandoning my group. And I don't feel like I'm a part of it anymore. That's why it's hard to come back. I don't feel a part of And that's why I have to come be a newcomer. So I have to keep taking personal inventory. I've got to keep taking personal inventory. On page 91, the third paragraph, it says, Our first objective in step 10 is the development of self-restraint. Okay, the top priority rating. Down the bottom of the page, it warns us about that good stuff. It says, We must be quite as careful when we begin to achieve some measure of importance in material success as we are when we're watching out for the bad stuff. Here's, here's something I thought was cute on page 92, about the middle of the page. It says, It will become more and more evident as we go forward that it is pointless to become angry or to get hurt by people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. Do you, you know what they mean by it's pointless to get angry? I mean, I used to get angry at everything. If you showed up late, I'd get angry. Do you know that I can make a point of the fact that you're late without having to get angry? I didn't know that. I thought you had to get angry. I didn't know you could just say, I wish you weren't late. It annoys me. That doesn't sound quite as angry, does it? I don't think you believe me. I don't think you realize I'm disappointed that you were late. It's better if I yell. See, then you know I'm mad, don't you? And then I can raise it up about three octaves and let you know I'm really upset. And then maybe you won't be late next time. That's how my mind operates. But in reality, i got to find a way to just say, you know what, I wish you wouldn't be late. I don't like it. And then next time you're late, leave without them. I didn't know I could do that. Now I don't wait on people that's late. If I say 2 o'clock and they're not there at 2 o'clock, I don't get mad because I leave. Some people say that that's childish and impatient. But you know what? It's my life. And if you say you'll meet me at 2 o'clock and you're not there, 
So I'm going to stand there and get mad. And it ain't bothering you at all to be late. No, no, I'd rather you be mad because I left you. So I leave it too. Not too early on, not too early too, I leave it too. Because that's what was done to me, and it's very effective. Because my sponsor told me to meet him one time, and I got there, and I was six minutes late. And he was gone. I thought, what an asshole. You couldn't wait six minutes? I mean, six minutes! How many of you would think that's ridiculous? They couldn't wait six lousy minutes. Of course, me, I don't think, you know, why shouldn't I disrupt their entire life? Why shouldn't they wait for me? I'm a big shot. They said two o'clock. It's only six minutes. What's that mean? So I expect to put their life on hold for six minutes just so I can fulfill my own destiny. That's as selfish as it gets. My sponsor taught me that. He said, if you say two o'clock, be there at two o'clock. He said, if that means you've got to leave a little early, be considerate. It's amazing how that worked. And I was able to take continual inventory on that and find out that he was absolutely right. I did expect people to give me latitude. I did expect people to give me special. You know, in AA, that doesn't work. In AA, I have to become responsible. I have to become self-supporting. Now, I'm not talking about rigid. I'm not talking about so rigid you break. I mean, if it's one or two minutes, well, I won't wait. Okay. Let's see. Somewhere on page 95, the last paragraph in step 10, or second to last, I want to read that. Learning daily to spot, admit, and correct these flaws is the essence of character building and good living. An honest regret for harms done, a genuine gratitude for blessings received, and a willingness to try for better things tomorrow will be the permanent assets we shall seek. So, I don't know about you, but that's a blessing for me. I've always wondered what the hell I'm going after. It just now told me what the assets are I want. There's only three of step ten. They're very simple. I want to have an honest regret for harms I did. You know what honest regret means? Don't blame nobody. Don't find any fault on your part at all. If I've done something wrong, I'm going to regret it. And I'm going to try to do better. That's an honest regret for harms done. I'm going to have a genuine gratitude for blessings received. You know how you find that out? People love AA. You, you love people. You love AA. Genuine, gen, genuinely grateful people seem to find the positive parts of life. They seem to have trouble finding the negative. You know how in step one they said that we had substitute negative for positive thinking in the big book? There's only one way to change that, and that's to start acting in a positive manner to overcome the negative thinking we've lived in. And that's where step ten is so important. Step ten allows me to see how I'm still looking at life in a negative way. And the only way to substitute positive thinking for negative is to begin living that way. And so I try to be a service to other people. I try to look for the good instead of the bad. I can see the bad just like that. It's so hard to find the good. I mean, if you ask me how I'm, if you ask me what I think about myself, I could rattle off ten negative things before I would tell you one good. Now, I may believe twenty, but I would never say it. I would say ten bad right away and then ask your permission to tell you something good. I don't know why I'm built that way, but I am. And willingness to try for better things tomorrow. Having so considered our day and out of any to take due note of things well done, having searched our hearts with neither fear nor favor, we can truly thank God for the blessings we have received and sleep in good conscience. I read in Reader's Digest where it said the softest pillow known to man is a clear conscience. I didn't have a clear conscience. I had sleep disorder. Did you know that? I had sleep disorder for a long time. It's funny how I don't have sleep disorder no more. 
I sleep pretty good. Sometimes I only get three hours sleep like last night. Last night I got three and a half hours sleep, and I got here. I was tired on the airplane. I wasn't sure I wanted to be here. But within ten minutes of being in here with you guys, the energy came. Just like the book says, we will find energy. And as soon as I started mixing with you guys today, my energy came from nowhere. Because the night before, I only got four hours sleep. And the weekend before this, I was on airplanes the whole weekend. I probably got six hours sleep the whole weekend. And some people would say that's kind of manic. But the reality of it is, I'm just out here trying to carry the message as best I can, and God seems to give me the energy I need. And when I don't need it anymore, guess what? I'll sleep for about 12 hours. But it's an interesting thing how these steps give us energy. Okay, let's take a break. We'll wrap it up with 11 and 12.